Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all. Uh, we do extend to you a very warm welcome, especially if you're visiting with us. Uh, and if you're new with us, we extend to you a very warm welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and look forward to the opportunity to speaking with you and getting to know you a bit more. And thankful that you've gathered with us on this Lord's Day to worship the triune God. And as we continue in our worship, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John chapter 4. The Gospel of John chapter 4. This morning for our sermon text, we will be focusing on verses 20 through 26. That's where we pick up. We left off at verse 19 last week. And so verses 20 through 26 will be our focus. But let us read from verse 13 so that we can remember some of the context of what has transpired between Jesus and his conversation with this Samaritan woman. And so let us hear the word of God beginning in John 4, verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. And if you would, let us unite our hearts one final time in prayer as we come to the preaching of his word and also as a particular uh, issue that we would like to take up in prayer is we would like to pray for our dear brother Nathan this morning as this is his last Sunday with us before he goes off to college. And so let us pray for our brother that the Lord would be with him and pray for our health as we come to his word. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your church. We bless you for all of the living stones that you have added to your spiritual temple. 
that you are building by your Spirit, where your Spirit dwells, for the glory of your Son. Father, we thank you this morning for our brother Nathan, and we thank you for the work of grace that you have wrought in his life, and the evidence of the grace of your Spirit that is so evident in his life, and his hungering and thirsting after righteousness, his desire to understand your word and to serve you faithfully. And Father, we do commit our brother to you as he departs from us this coming week on his way to college. We pray that you would be with him. We pray that he would know your presence and your help. Father, we pray that in all his ways, he would acknowledge you, that he would look to you, that he would have first and foremost in his mind how his life might be a living sacrifice offered for your glory. Father, we pray for him and his time at college. We pray, Father, that he would be a great witness for Christ. We pray, Father, that he would speak boldly and proudly of the truth of the gospel and of Christ crucified and risen and reigning in glory. We pray that you would mature him as a Christian man. We pray that you would unite him to a faithful, healthy church in that area where he can serve, where he can grow together with saints in godliness and the knowledge of the truth. Father, we pray that you would guard our brother from the temptations of the world. Help him to guard his own heart. Help him to lay out his own heart before you in prayer. We pray, Lord, that he would walk in a way that is pleasing to you and in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. We thank you for our brother. We thank you, Lord, for the ties that we will continue to have even as he departs from us physically. We thank you, Lord, for the union of your church and the unity that we have in the one spirit that you have given to us. And Father, as we come to the preaching of your word, we pray that you would draw near to all of us. We ask that you would send your spirit to illumine our minds and our hearts. Father, we pray that your spirit would remove our despondency and oftentimes our apathy towards the things of God, that he would within us well up and cause us to worship you in spirit and in truth as we consider and meditate upon Your Word and how it applies to us, we pray that Your blessed Holy Spirit would take us up into the heights of worship, that we would give You the worship and the obedience of our lives, which is our reasonable and spiritual service to You. Father, we pray for any who are here who are yet outside of Christ and do not have the Spirit of Christ, we pray that You would be gracious to them today. That through Your Word and through the Gospel, they would be awakened to newness of life. That they would, like this woman, see their own sin and feel their need of Christ and His Spirit. And that You would, by Your grace, bring them into a saving union with Christ. Father, we pray that You would do it for Your glory. We pray that you would do it for the glory of your Son and the glory of your Holy Spirit. Draw near to us now, we pray. Minister to all of our hearts as you know each has need. Cause your word to convict and encourage and instruct. We pray that it would have great application for our 
hearts and our affections and our wills and our hands and our feet to be changed for your glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we pick up in this encounter with the woman at the well. And if you, you'll remember, if you've been with us, Jesus has, in His grace, sought out this spiritually needy woman. She is a woman lost in false religion. She is a Samaritan woman. She is an immoral woman. And Jesus has crossed cultural and religious lines, if you will, out of love to seek out this woman. And despite her at first inflammatory attitude towards Him because He's a Jew and she's a Samaritan, Jesus continues to pursue her and has offered her living water. The gift of the Spirit of God who would well up within her unto eternal life. And you'll remember from last week when Jesus sees that the spiritual light bulbs are clearly not on for this woman, He then, and and seeing that she doesn't see see her need for what Jesus is offering her, He then, as a prophet, brought her face to face with her own sin, causing her, as it were, to look in the mirror and to see her own spiritual need and poverty And it's at that point last week that she begins to see that this is more than just a Jew, but that this is indeed a prophet. And that's her confession that we left off last time in verse 19. And that's what brings us now to this next section in the discussion. This woman now in verse 20 raises the issue that had been at the center of the debate between her people, the Samaritans, and Jesus' people, the Jews. And so with that brief introduction, let's begin with our exposition, and we will consider the text together, what it teaches us, how it instructs us, and then we'll turn to our doctrine and application. First of all, our exposition, beginning in verse 20, the woman says, "...our fathers worshipped on this mountain..." And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Now, I mentioned last time, you might remember, that some commentators see this question as yet another diversion that this woman is using to change the subject away from her own sin. As though she's, you know, Jesus, let's not talk about my marriages anymore. Let's instead talk about the worship debate that exists between the Jews and the Samaritans. But it seems to me that verse 20, in her confessing him to be a prophet, it seems that this actually marks a sincere change in her attitude towards Christ. Having been told by him, as she will later in the chapter say, having been told by him everything she had ever done in her life, she sees this is indeed a prophet sent by God to reveal to her the will of God. And so now she rightly responds and desires to be instructed by this prophet in the right way of worshiping God. Both Jews and Samaritans believe that God is to be worshipped. The controversy that divided them was where and how He was to be worshipped. And I've already mentioned this in previous sermons, but it's important that I explain a little bit of the context here in case you weren't present for that. The Samaritans who dwelt in the middle portion of Israel's land, who had re- the Samaritans had rejected 
all of the Old Testament Scriptures and all of the Old Testament prophets with the exception of Moses. So they believed the first five books of the Bible and Moses was a prophet, but nothing after that. And because of that, the Samaritans had erected out of their own invention a rival temple on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. Though God had appointed His worship to take place in Jerusalem, in the temple that He commanded to be built, the Samaritans had rejected the Word of God and had decided they would worship God as they saw fit. In a different place and in a different way. And by the way, in that sense, the Jews were right to view them as apostates from Israel's religion. Right? This woman claims Jacob as her father, and yet religiously she is apostate from the religion of Jacob. I mean, this rival temple on Mount Gerizim is akin to the building of the high places in the Old Covenant. Calvin said, quote, nothing is more wicked than to contrive various modes of worship without the authority of God's Word. Close quote. Right? We need to understand that. God is the one that tells us how He is to be worshipped. We don't decide for ourselves how God should be worshipped. Notice she claims the authority of the fathers. Something that's so common when we're trying to defend a tradition. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Right? Now, that, as far as that goes, that's true, right? But, even if your fathers have done something, and even if they've done it for centuries, that is in no way an argument for whether what you're doing is right or wrong. The passage of time and the fact that a lot of people are doing something does not replace the rule of the Word of God. And likewise, Christian, there's application in that for us, we likewise need to be careful that we don't just assume that because our spiritual forefathers have done such and such, that that inherently gives it biblical warrant. Right? Tradition is good in as far as it is a biblical tradition, but tradition is bad when that tradition actually undermines the authority of God's teaching in His Word. And so, this woman describes the situation right. Her fathers worshipped on this mountain, but it is decidedly the Jews who are correct in this debate. However, Jesus first responds in a way that would be totally unlike the way any other Jew would have responded. Notice verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Now, you need to realize that would have absolutely scandalized the average Jew in this day. If Jesus were anyone else and any other Jew, He would have simply said that you Samaritans are heretics and absolutely Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And yet Jesus says the hour is coming, woman, in which neither on Mount Gerizim nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He says, woman, believe me. That is, believe me as a prophet. You, woman, are expecting an hour in which by some divine revelation, this controversy between Jerusalem and Gerizim will be settled. But I tell you, an hour is coming in which both locations will become irrelevant with, in regards to the worship of God. 
You think about the shock value of that statement. Whether in Jerusalem, which is known for its holiness, or in Gerizim, which was known for its vileness, both of those will become indifferent in the matter of worship. And what he is declaring to this woman is that with the very fast approaching dissolution of the Jewish economy and the dissolution of the Old Covenant, she will worship the Father just as everyone else will worship the Father anywhere and everywhere. The worship of Israel, which was confined to a particular place and full of external uh, ceremonies and sacrifices, is fading away in order to give way to a more pure and spiritual worship. So mark it very clearly, Christian. Under the Gospel dispensation, the worship of God is not tied to any location on earth. There is no place or building in which our worship is more accepted by God and there is no place that is to be regarded as more holy than another place. But rather, wherever God's people gather to worship in the Spirit and in truth, that is where the temple of God is. The new temple. But then, having given this qualification, Jesus then does confirm that the Jews are correct in their worship. Verse 22. He says, you, and the you there is plural in Greek. He's not just saying you woman. He's saying you Samaritans. You worship what you do not know. We know. We the Jews know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Now that is a very important statement on worship. It may be that the question this woman posed will soon be irrelevant, but that doesn't mean that the Samaritan worship was undeserving of criticism. He says, you, plural, worship what you do not know. You worship in ignorance. Okay. Now mark that. Worship without knowledge of the One whom we are worshiping is not true worship of God, but is worship of an idol that we have created. The Samaritans worshipped what they did not know because they had rejected the commandment of God. And that is extremely relevant for us and for the church today. And we'll open this up in our, in our doctrine. It does not matter what good intentions someone might have. Those who worship God apart from His Word and according to their own opinion and inventions necessarily worship God in ignorance. Matthew Henry says, ignorance is so far from being the mother of devotion that it is the murderer of it. You hear that so often today that ignorance breeds sincere devotion. No, ignorance is the murderer of sincere devotion. The only way to properly ascribe glory and honor and blessing to God is to know the God to whom you are ascribing it. And if you're worshiping the God of your own making, it is idolatry. Jesus says to her, you woman, you you worship something that you don't even know. But He says, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. 
And that, when he says that, that doesn't mean that obviously we understand there were many things in Jesus' day that had become corrupted by the religious leaders in terms of the worship of God. But here he defends the institution of Israel's worship over and against Samaritan worship because Israel's worship was instituted and guided by God's Word. God gave Israel as a nation uniquely the promise of the Messiah who was to come And in preparation for that Messiah, He gave them the ordinances of worship to guide them in the worship of God and to teach them about the Lord who was to come. Verse 23, But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. So, Having told this woman what was becoming obsolete and indifferent in worship, namely the location, he now tells this woman what is essential and of the very substance of worship. True worshipers, he says, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The the emphasis is true worship is not about the location of where it takes place, but about the state of one's mind and heart. Now, what do those two words mean? Spirit and truth. This is somewhere where we have to thread the needle a bit to properly understand what Jesus is saying here. Many take, and many men whom I respect take this view, by the way, many take these words spirit and truth to refer to the mind and the affections. Okay? So, the intellect, we must worship with our intellect, but also with the affections. Meaning, when we worship God, we must have a right understanding of God in our mind, but more than that, our affections must then respond appropriately to that truth. Okay, So, those who take that view, they take spirit here to be spirit with a a lowercase s, right? Our spirit. Our inner man, our emotions, our affections. Now, I don't deny any of that is true. True worship should involve the whole man. And I actually used to hold that interpretation. In fact, I've told some of the guys, I've actually preached this text that way. It's been far too long before any of you would have heard it. So in some senses, this is a correcting sermon here. I think, given the context, we should understand spirit here to be spirit with a capital S meaning worshiping by the Holy Spirit. And the reason for that is think about what Jesus has been talking about this whole chapter with this woman. Given the emphasis on living water that John 7 unmistakably identifies as the gift of the Spirit that will well up within the believer, welling up unto eternal life, I think that fits best with the flow of this conversation. Now, to be sure, worshiping by the Holy Spirit certainly involves our spirit's engagement. But I think Jesus' emphasis here is that contrary to the externals of Israel's worship, which I mean, you think about the Old Covenant worship. We've been reading about some of it in in the Old Testament. You had incense. You had a physical altar. You had physical robes and a physical temple. What Jesus is saying is that contrary to the the physical externals of Old Testament worship, 
that many unregenerate people participated in, by the way, new covenant worship is spiritual because it is a participation in the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 24, how Jesus grounds this. He says, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So Jesus is rooting this in God's essence. God in His being is immaterial. He is infinite. He is boundless. He is not bound to one place or another place. And therefore, we worship Him by the power of His Spirit who is the very life of the Father and the Son given to dwell within us. In other words, the same Spirit who we read in John 3 gives life to our dead souls causing us to be born again is the same Spirit who then lifts us in the heights of worship to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it is also noticed, Jesus says, not just worship in the Spirit or by the Spirit, it is worship in truth. Okay? Now again, this is where we have to thread the needle here. Um, that doesn't mean that what Jesus is saying is that Old Testament worship was false. Okay? That's not what He's saying here. Um, he, he doesn't mean truth versus falsehood, but He means substance versus shadow. Okay? Israel's external worship was pleasing to God for the time that He had appointed it, but it was a shadow of the substance of true worship to come. It wasn't, Jesus is not saying that that was false what God instituted, but it was inferior and incomplete. But now the hour is coming and has now come in which the old is falling away and the new has arrived. Martin Lloyd-Jones gave the analogy, he compared Old Covenant worship to driving through town through all the side streets. And he compared New Covenant worship as taking the freeway. That all of those things that were pictures have been fulfilled now in the person of Christ. And we have direct access by the Spirit through the person of Christ to the Father. Jesus goes on, He says, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. If you think about it, if the worship of the Old Covenant had been sufficient, the Father would not be seeking others to worship Him in spirit and in truth. But as that worship was typological and inferior, the Father is now creating the church of His Son composed of those who will worship in spirit and truth. Verse 25, The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ, when He comes, He will tell us all things. This woman, it's quite amazing, even as a Samaritan, she has the expectation of Messiah to come. And clearly, notice, she ascribes to that coming Messiah something greater than the law. In other words, she seems to be giving preference to the Messiah that He will declare to us all things, recognizing that in a sense the law was incomplete without Him. And that's commendable of her. However, she doesn't realize yet that she's talking to Him. And it seems that where she is presently at is she's convinced that Christ is a prophet and that His words have even perhaps pleased her 
But it seems like she intends to just suspend her judgment in this matter for the time being until Messiah comes and tells me for sure. And so, verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Jesus reveals His identity to, the, identity to this woman more clearly than any others in Israel. He bestows... You remember the, the themes in the Gospels of Jesus not wanting to be known and recognized publicly. And yet here, He bestows such an honor on this Samaritan woman that He makes known to her without a doubt His identity as the Christ. And in fact, He does so by using the first instance of His identification as the I Am. It doesn't come through in English. Most translations have it as I Am He. You're probably familiar with the theme of I Am in John where Jesus often takes to Himself the divine name. I Am who I Am. And here for the first time, Jesus simply says to her, I am the One who is speaking to you. Revealing to her His identity as the Divine Son, the Lord who is who He is. And at this, the woman cannot help but leave her water pot and run into the city and tell them of the man that she has met. And that's where we'll pick up in our exposition next time. But let us conclude our exposition there and turn our attention now to our doctrine and our application. Doctrine and application. And this morning, again, I've combined these into one rather than having three separate doctrinal points and three applications. I've combined them into one. And I want to open up for us this morning three things from this text that we've opened up in which we are instructed doctrinally and things that have uh, uh, have great application to us in our Christian life. Okay, so three things, and I'll give them to you as we go. Number one, Christian, we are instructed regarding the importance of the regulative principle of worship here. Okay? We are instructed regarding the importance of the regulative principle of worship. I'll explain that in just a second. Jesus says of the Samaritans as a whole, you worship what you do not know. Now, why did they worship what they did not know in ignorance? It is because they had abandoned the rule of God's Word for their worship. They turned aside from what God had written and instead they relied on their own inventions and as a result, they went headlong into error and ignorance. The regulative principle of worship simply means this. It means that God's Word alone regulates and defines how God is to be rightly worshipped. Okay? Out of all of the areas of our lives that God is concerned with, and He's concerned with all of them, there is no area God is more concerned about than how His people worship Him corporately. That is evident in His instructions to Israel in their Old Covenant worship, and it's evident in His instruction to the church. Because Christian, here's the thing. Even as Christians, we are still full of ignorance and we have a proneness to error. 
But God knows perfectly how He desires to be worshipped. And therefore, if we desire ours to be true worship and not done in ignorance and error, we must follow His Word closely to ensure that we only bring to Him in worship those acceptable sacrifices He has commanded of us. That's what sets the regulative principle apart from what's called the normative principle of worship. The normative principle of worship says that yes, the Word of God guides us in our worship in the sense that we ought not to do anything that is expressly forbidden in Scripture. But if something is not explicitly forbidden, then we are free to do it. Okay, those two things are very different. Saying if it's not forbidden, we can do it. And saying no, we can only do it if God has commanded it. And I would challenge the normative principle by asking the question, if it's true we're free to do whatever hasn't been expressly forbidden, what about Nadab and Abihu? Right? Leviticus 10. Our brother Adrian read it a few weeks ago. Why were Nadab and Abihu struck dead? Verse 1 of Leviticus 10 tells us, they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. And here's the statement which He had not commanded them. We need to understand that very clearly. Nadab and Abihu didn't do anything that had been expressly forbidden by God. They simply went beyond what is written and they offered something God had not commanded them. Christian, God regulates His worship for our good and for His glory that it may be in accordance with truth. And under the New Covenant, obviously we're not under the commands given to Israel for worship, under the New Covenant, our charter of how God commands us to worship Him is very simple and very clear. We do not worship according to the Old Testament way. We worship in a more simpler and yet more glorious way of in the Spirit and in truth. God commands us by the enablement of His Spirit through the mediation of Christ to worship God through His Word. And why His Word? Because His Word is the only way we can know God rightly and truly. And so, we are commanded by God to worship Him through the preaching of His Word, through the re reading of His Word, through the praying of His Word, the singing of His Word, and seeing His Word in baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's it. Those are the things that we are commanded to do in New Covenant worship. No candles, no incense, no smoke, no drama, no skits, no plays, no images. Just sincere worship by the Spirit through the Word of God. And what is astounding to me is that when people balk at that as boring and legalistic and constraining, they are actually balking at the very method God has given us for preserving true knowledge and worship of God. Because when you depart as a church from word-centeredness and you depart from simplicity and plainness in the worship of God 
And when instead worship is turned into very little emphasis on the truth, and the real experience is come, comes from the dimmed lights and the smoke and whatever else, what that produces is a superstitious people who have very little true knowledge of the God that they profess to worship. And if you don't believe me, just look at those in the Roman Catholic Church. Or look at those who are in these churches today who have departed from the Word and instead replaced it for entertainment and ask those people, who is the God that you worship? And by and large, what you will hear is ignorance. Because how you worship God affects how you know God and whether you know God. Which is why Calvin said, quote, worshiping God according to our own inventions necessarily will descend into idolatry and false worship. Christians who know God best are Christians who worship God rightly. And so, Christian, stick closely to God's Word. Yes, I mean that privately in your own study, in your own meditation, so that you will, Romans 12, be able to offer your life as a living sacrifice, which is our spiritual worship. But also, Christian, in the gathered church, in corporate worship, which is God's main vehicle of instruction and discipleship, may we all be those who are zealous to maintain the purity of God's worship and the centrality of His Word in His worship. First, for the glory of God, and secondly, for our own spiritual well-being. And let me add to that, not only our spiritual well-being, but the spiritual well-being of our children and the generations still unborn. The church that worships God seriously through His Word as He has prescribed, not only preserves itself, but it preserves the knowledge of God for generations to come. That brings us to the second doctrine slash application. We are instructed here, secondly, regarding the church becoming the temple of God. We are instructed here regarding the church becoming the temple of God. Now, You'll notice the word temple itself does not explicitly appear in this text, and yet the theme of temple is clearly present. God told Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7.16, referring to the, the temple in Jerusalem, God told Solomon, for now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. And yet, here Jesus says to this woman in verse 21, the hour is coming in which neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now what is happening there? What is happening here? What's happening is shadow is giving way to substance. Israel, as a nation, according to the flesh, Israel was a type of the church and a type of the kingdom of God. Okay? God chose physical Israel out of all of the nations to be His possession. And in them becoming His possession, 
He gave them a land, a physical land to dwell in, and in that land He appointed a particular place where His worship would take place. Jerusalem. Where the temple was built and where the Spirit resided. Where God dwelt with His people. And all of that, as glorious as it was, was like scaffolding. Okay? We all understand that when you're building a building, you first put up scaffolding to help you build the building, right? But once the building is finished and completed, what happens to the scaffolding? It goes away so that the building can remain. That's what's happening here. Israel was the scaffolding through which Christ would be brought into the world who would be Himself the cornerstone of the new temple in order that in Him the true temple of God would be built, namely, His global church. Not limited to one place. So, just as Israel's Old Covenant worship falls away when Christ appears, so also the localized temple given to a localized people falls away because Christ is the true temple in which God dwells with man and in Christ His people become the temple by the Holy Spirit wherever they are scattered across this world. Because the Father is seeking such to worship Him not only in Jerusalem, but everywhere and anywhere to the ends of the earth. Worshippers gathered from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation worshiping the Father by the Spirit through Christ. And so now, under this new hour that has come, there is no one place of geography or building where worship is more acceptable to God, but rather wherever God's people assemble to worship, it is a holy assembly because His people are His dwelling place. By the Spirit. Which speaks to us of how holy and glorious the church is. The church is the eschatological dwelling place of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16-17 Paul says to the Corinthian church, do you... and he, Again, that you there is plural. He's not just speaking to the individual Christian. He's speaking to them as a church. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Therefore, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. It's amazing when you trace the thread here and, and understand the theme of what, what exactly is happening in terms of biblical theology. I think it's right to see the Garden of Eden as the first temple on earth. And that, that's one of the reasons, by the way, that the artwork inside Israel's temple harkens back and is reminiscent of the Garden. Because it was that first temple. And Adam's job was to expand the borders of that Garden, right? The whole earth wasn't a Garden yet. His job was to expand the borders of that garden until the whole earth, as it were, became the temple and the dwelling place of God. Now, obviously, by sinning, Adam failed in that mission. But in redemption now, God in Christ is fulfilling that mission. 
Israel's temple was one localized place where the nations could come and see the glory of God. But now in Christ and His church being built upon Him as the cornerstone, the temple of God is expanding and infiltrating the whole world until the glory of the Lord covers the earth the way the waters cover the sea. As the Gospel goes forth and sinners believe on Christ, and the Holy Spirit is adding living stones to this temple, worshipers in spirit and truth are declaring the glory of God to all nations. Inviting them too to leave this world of sin behind and become themselves a part of this temple. Christian, consider what a high calling and what a privilege it is to be a part of God's temple and to have His Spirit dwelling within you. If those, think about it, if those in the Old Covenant had such a zeal for the holiness of a building built by human hands, how much more zeal ought we to have for the holiness of Christ's church? You are a living stone in a spiritual building that exists to display the glory of God. And how that places on us an obligation to be consecrated to the Lord. To worship the Lord in a holy manner. To live at peace with one another. To deal with one another justly. To love one another. To show grace and to forgive one another. We are, as God's temple, to be holy as He is holy because we are a royal priesthood and priests who minister in a temple that's not made with human hands but was purchased by the very blood of Christ. That brings us to the third and final thing this morning. The third doctrine and application that this passage instructs us in is this. We are taught of the necessity of the Spirit to worship God. We are taught concerning the necessity of having the Spirit to worship God. Jesus declared to Nicodemus in chapter 3, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Notice what Jesus says here. He likewise tells this woman in verse 24, God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in Spirit and truth. Christian, the power and influence of the Spirit is not not only necessary to make us spiritually alive to God at first, but it is also that same blessed Spirit who enables and assists us in our worship of God. It is the Spirit who revives our hearts like living water giving spiritual vigor to our whole man in order that we might with sincerity worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Matthew Henry said, we must depend upon God's Spirit for strength and assistance laying our souls under His influence and operation. I encourage you, I'll give you some homework. I encourage you, Christian, when you go home today, Read slowly and meditate through the stanzas of that hymn that we sing, Come Holy Spirit, Come. Most of us are familiar with that hymn. 
and meditate on each of the specific requests we are making of the Spirit. Sometimes when you sing a hymn, it's too fast to really catch everything that it's saying. In that hymn, we are praying as God's people, we are praying to the Spirit for the Spirit to, first of all, enlighten our understanding. In that hymn, we ask Him to remove our despondency and our apathy towards the things of God. We pray that He would come and revive our drooping faith. That He would convict us of our sin and show us the love of God. That the Spirit would sanctify every part of our soul. And that hymn is not even an exhaustive list of the Spirit's graces. In Zechariah 12.10, the Spirit, God promises that I'm going to pour out upon My people the Spirit of supplication. The Spirit is the Spirit of supplication who helps His people even to pray in sincerity and earnest. The Spirit, Christian, is the one who enables and authors every sacrifice we bring to the altar of God in Christian worship. Spurgeon, when he would ascend his pulpit before he preached, his was you know, much taller and he had a staircase that he had to climb. Every step he took to the next step, he would tell himself, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Because he knew that the worship of God's people and the conversion of sinners to Christ was not dependent on His oratory gift and His persuasive speech, but on the Holy Spirit descending and filling and lifting His people to the heights of praise and worship. And that in the same way, if anyone is going to get converted and turned from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, it's because the Spirit comes and gives them newness of life. Brothers and sisters, perhaps we have not so experienced the refreshment of the living water in our souls as much as we would like because we have neglected to ask Him. Perhaps it's because we have neglected to ask for greater measures of the living Spirit of God to flood our souls and to revive our drooping hearts and to restore to us the joy of our salvation so that we cry out with the psalmist, I will declare Your name to my brethren and in the midst of the assembly, I will praise You. Luke 11.13 Jesus says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them who ask Him? Christian, it delights the Father when His children, aware of their own being destitute in and of themselves, come to Him and ask Him again and again, Father, You have given us and filled us with Your Spirit, but how we long for Him to well up more and more within us. How we, want, how we long for all of our mind and all of our will, and all of our affections to be more put under the Spirit's influence and operation. Unbeliever, let me close by speaking to you. (coughs) 
unbeliever, if you're here and you're outside of Christ, and therefore void of the Spirit of God in your heart, you need to understand from what Jesus is saying to this Samaritan woman, all of your external acts of worship, in fact, all of the external acts of worship anyone could think of in the whole world, cannot please the Father if they are not performed in the Holy Spirit. Because the Father is seeking such worshipers that worship in spirit and in truth. And you might be here this morning and you're like this woman and you're committed to the externals of worship. Right? Which temple? Where should we go to worship God? And you join with the church and you, you even sing the words and you endure the preaching, but your heart and soul are afar off from God. And Jesus' verdict to you about that worship is the same as His verdict was to the Pharisees. When He said to the Pharisees, this people honors Me with their lips, but their heart is far from Me. Because you haven't been born again. You can go through the motions. Sinners can go through the motions. But you don't have the divine life within you welling up unto eternal life. And like this woman, you care about the things of this world. But when it comes to the things of God, you're not gladly worshiping for His worthiness to be worshipped. You're just doing your duty. And if that's you this morning, I plead to you to be honest with your soul and honest with God. And come to Jesus to have a life that you may have it abundantly. Confess your hypocrisy. Confess your dullness of heart and your need of a new heart. And come to Him who alone can give you the living water after which you receive you will never thirst. Christ can change what is merely duty for you now into a delight. He's done it for millions. He's done it for those who are far off from God. And He's done it for those who were hypocritically near to God but didn't really have the root of the matter in them. He has taken them where they are and He has made them worshipers in spirit and in truth. And why could He not therefore do it for you? Come to the waters and drink. Jesus, in His grace, like He offers this woman, He offers you water without price. All the fitness that He requires of you is to feel your need for Him and to come and to trust Him for His grace. Trust Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would write Your Word upon our hearts. Father, we pray for greater measures of Your Holy Spirit in our lives. That You would revive our drooping faith. Father, all of us who are Your people know the reality, and we would be dishonest if we denied it, of how often we are apathetic to the things of God. And we know even in our own hearts that we are not as fully and wholly given up to the things of God as we ought to be. Father, we thank You for Your mercy to Your wayward children. 
We thank you that though we are prone to wander, yet Christ seeks always after his sheep. Father, we pray for greater measures of your Spirit to fill us, to warm our hearts and our affections and our minds to the glory of God, the beauty of worship, the blessing and privilege of worship. Father, we pray that our worship offered to you would be pleasing in your sight, that it would be in spirit and in truth. Father, even as we come to the Lord's table and we continue in our worship together, we pray that You would bless Your people. Grow us in grace. Help us to have a greater assurance of Your love and Your grace towards us than when we walked in this morning. Help us to be reassured through the means of grace You have given us. Father, again, we pray for any who are here who don't know Christ, convict them of their sin and lead them to the cross of Christ. Lead them to the fountain that is filled with blood in which they can wash away all their guilty stains. Father, be our help, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.